Hey everyone, and thank you so much for tuning into Virtual Sentiments today. We're really glad to have you. And we're really excited too to add Virtual Sentiments to our family of podcasts from the Hayek program. Just before we get started, if you like what you hear today and you want to hear more of it and you think other people should hear more of it, please do consider sharing the podcast. We have got a lot of ground that we're going to cover on this season of Virtual Sentiments. We're going to cover topics on the ethics of artificial intelligence. We've got conversations on self-driving cars, the evolution of communication, and we're even going to get into literature uh, later on in the season. So there really is something for everybody, and we'd like to make those conversations as available as possible to everyone who wants to hear them. Also, we release every two weeks for this season of Virtual Sentiments, so if you just can't wait for that next episode to come out, I'd encourage you to check out our other podcast from the Hayek Program, which is simply called the Hayek Program Podcast. There's a wealth of information over there on topics such as economics and sociology and politics, and it's a perfect resource for you and other lifelong learners to engage with. And finally, if you listen to a couple episodes of Virtual Sentiments and you're really liking the show, we will always appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. Let's get to the episode. My guest today is Martin Gurry, a former CIA analyst who is currently a visiting research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Today we'll be talking about his work on the relationship between politics and media, especially about the nature of digital media, which he details in his book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. I'd love to start off our conversation by chatting about the title of your monthly column for Mercatus's Discourse magazine, which is called Fifth Wave, referring to the most recent of five major transformations in how human beings communicate information with each other. Would you mind briefly explaining these five waves and how this framework helps structure your thinking about today's technology? Sure. Uh- Basically, technology doesn't um, change in a gradual and incremental way. Technology changes in great big pulses or waves. Um, And I mean, you can parse it many different ways. For me, I I saw five major waves and each one uh, was associated with a certain sociopolitical structure. So the first one obviously was the invention of writing which was um, you know, hieroglyphics uh, and, and uh, that, that kind of script that was associated with a, a Mandarin or, or priestly caste. These were writings that, that um, you needed a lifetime to learn. Uh, so they were very difficult, very elite uh, driven. The second one, of course, was the alphabet when suddenly writing became available to many people and you would not have had the... Um, the classical republics of Athens and Rome, for example, without there being an alphabet. In both of those, there was a, a um, concerted effort by, by the public to have the laws written out. That would have made no difference in Egypt because nobody could read it. But in, in Athens and in Rome, when the laws were written out, people could read them. Uh, the third one, possibly the most disruptive of all, 
was uh, the printing press. And that one changed everything. It changed, um, it, it was largely responsible for uh, the scientific revolution. You have no idea how difficult it is to keep data uh, from drifting, just have basically having somebody who's copying over copying wrong, how difficult it is to maintain data from just becoming unreadable uh, unless you have a way of capturing it permanently, the printing press, the, 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 it doesn't change. Uh, but also it was, the, it contributed a great deal to revolutions in, in uh, here in the United States, the American Revolution and in France. So it was possibly, and, and it began with, with the Reformation, which was um, the Thirty Years' War, possibly the most horrible war ever in, 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 uh, in Europe. So the printing press has been uh, implicated in a lot of change. I would say the fourth one was the one that I, as you can see, I'm not a young man, uh, I was born into, and that is the mass media. The mass media uh, began somewhere on the turn of the 20th century and peaked somewhere around maybe the third um, quarter of that century. Uh, and it was a way of, of educating the hundreds of millions of people in, in uh, industrialized countries that were entering history at that time and needed in, in both democratic and, and, and non-democratic countries needed to be put into the picture of what was going on in a way that elites found comfortable. So just basically included all these people in a very top-down, I talk, you listen mode. And of course, the fifth one is the one we're in right now is the digital age, the fifth wave of information, which uh, is not quite to um, the third wave level, not quite to the printing press level, but it is massively disruptive. It is disruptive every, every aspect of, uh, of uh, that old world, the, 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 the mass media world that, that, um, uh, that I was born into is, is very maladapted to what's going on right now. And that's essentially what I write about. Great, thank you. I think that the wave metaphor is such a helpful way of both acknowledging what is extremely new and disruptive about our era while drawing those parallels to these other historical periods. So I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, it really does strike me, and I think you're not the only one to highlight the political consequences of the printing press. Um, it certainly is an iconic invention as someone who works on early modern political thought, I was particularly struck by the comparison that you drew in your book between our time and the 17th century religious wars. I was hoping you might illuminate uh, what about our time brings that historic period to mind for you. Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways you can, you can parse that. Um, one is that probably the outcome of everything that's happening right now is utterly beyond the scope of what us supposedly wise heads are, are talking about, right? Uh, you look at a conflict, and right now, uh, the way I, I define it, and you can, again, parse it many ways, but uh, it clarifies my mind to think of it in terms of the public empowered by these digital devices, uh, and then the elites that basically have inherited the old 20th century world and are desperately clinging to it. And you go, well, is it one going to win? Is the other going to win? And my one parallel would be in, in uh, the wars of religion, if you were to, um, to bring somebody back to life uh, who was active at that time, the first question they would ask you would be, who won, the Catholics or the Protestants, right? And 
in a way, both are still here. They, they, they neither died out, neither. But what one was something entirely other, right? There was some dialectic that happened there that, that gave birth to some different world that anybody who was immersed in that conflict could have dreamed of. So that's one aspect of it. Um, another aspect of it is we tend to think we're in the worst, most horrible um, and, and um, conflicted and unhappy times. I, I, it's amazing to me how often you can see gloom and doom uh, pretty much along every ideological stripe, every socioeconomic uh, condition. No matter where you are, you're feeling miserable and you feel unhappy and you feel like this is the worst of all possible times. And there's a tendency to say, well, it's the internet, it's the social media, this is a horrible thing that's been given to us. And I mean, there's an element of truth, but I always say, I, I hark to a, 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 you know, a, a, a mental experiment that my friend um, Antonio Garcia Martinez um, uh, once, once uh, told me, which is, suppose um, you went to the 30 years war, which as I said before, it was the most horrible war, far more horrible uh, in terms of uh, percentages of population killed than World War II. Uh, and, and believe me, the horrible things happened in it. Uh, civilians dying in many different ways. So you went to work to uh, the 30 years war and you asked the question, what do you think of the printing press? The answer would be, it's the most horrible thing ever. Take it away, break it up. Let's pretend it never happened. It has been nothing but a disaster for this once unified uh, continent. And because people were walking around with little prayer books and if my prayer book has 10 different words in it from your prayer book, we're going to have to kill each other, right? And before that didn't happen, nobody, nobody would have had a book. We wouldn't have been literate. It would have been, you know, some other cast of people that, that could read and write. So we today know that the printing press was, I think, without question, the most liberating innovation in the history of the human race. But it took 150 years to figure out what the heck to do with it. All right. So we're now in the very, very early stages of this, this chaos brought about by the Internet. And I think we should go back and look at the 17th century and think, OK, we're not in a 30 years war. OK, we're not anywhere to that level of misery or suffering. Um, so let's be thankful for that. Yes. So in that way, the historical perspective gives a sense of optimism and makes things look a little less bad than we might think, less fraught, less chaotic than we might think. Um, I am very struck by, too, the ambiguities, though, of the printing press, both historically and even as we think of it now, that while we can consider it instrumental to um, the rise of freedom, uh, it is also known as something that had a very disruptive and could have gone the other way as well, I, I think. But I wonder if that is the case. And that kind of gets us to what I think is one of the foundational questions for anyone who's thinking about technology, which is whether certain technologies, devices, or Lincoln Winner uses the term artifact in a pretty iconic piece on this, uh, whether these devices have any inherent politics or inherent ethics to them. How do you think of that question? Um, does that play a role in both thinking about the printing press or the more contemporary technologies that we're dealing with? I, I don't believe they have inherent politics. I think they have inherent structural um, constraints and possibilities that, that 
crash into established politics. And then you get those, those technologies involved in highly political uh, conflicts. So um, the internet, the you know, digital world essentially has empowered literally billions of people to both organize, exchange information and act uh, in ways that the elites of the 20th century and they're at the top of their very comfy pyramids have had no clue could be done. So what you have had for the last, you know, for the last 20 years, picking up speed, of course, after maybe Donald Trump got elected and, and Brexit happened in Britain and the elites finally woke up to what was happening. Uh, you have had a conflict between a very dissatisfied, angry public and a very reactionary set of elites that does not want to go beyond uh, where, um, where they were in the 20th century, which is top down, I talk and you shut up. And um, structurally, that's just not possible. So structurally, you can see that the, uh, the elites uh, are not going to ever win that, that fight. Uh, and all the devices that they, they, they're trying now, like fact checking so that certain opinions are blocked and other opinions are favored, um, uh, that those are tactical patches on, on a massively disruptive structure that is going to break through them. Yeah, so I appreciate this idea. So the way the internet and these forms of digital media are structured, they decentralize the access to information and the access to, to communicating information, not just receiving it. But I do wonder if there is sometimes more parallels between our current technological landscape and the mass media landscape of the fourth wave. So a lot of the debates around tech platforms and including content moderation often come down to a claim that they are monopolistic or oligopolistic. So in the case of Google, it dominates 90% or so, sorry, 90% or so of the market share of search, um, but then it is more of a duopoly with meta in terms of digital advertising. So it seems to me that fundamentally there are still these large corporate entities that at least affect the structure and the policies that end up shaping how information is disseminated among people. Would you agree with that? And what do you think of those claims about these concentrated forms of power that still affect this decentralized information sphere. Yeah, that, and I think that's that's been a development of the last five years. I 100% agree with that. I, I think it's become a there's a digital oligarchy that is in place right now, um, and um, I mean, in a sense, we the public created them because we loved, you know, Twitter and 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 Facebook and so forth. But in a sense. Um, you know, and, and it matters only when there is a, a, a digital I mean, a ideological convergence, um, because even if you had these large um, oligarchical structures, um, as long as they stood aside and apart from the mainstream media and, and the elite controlled environment, the public could still use them. But what you see now is um, the people who run these very, you know, 
it's easy to control an oligarchy. It's very hard to control a vast universe of, of digital sites, for example. So a lot of threats have been heaped upon the, the, the lords of Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, we're going to come and, and break you up. We're going to uh, change uh, Section 230. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And they have decided that there's also an element of aging, I think. These were these were um, platforms that were that were um, erected by very young people, and they were very comfortable with uh, move fast and break things, right? I mean, they were very comfortable with that because when you're young, that's the way the world looks. Well, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is married, has kids. Uh, the other Google guys, I mean, they're they're into deep into middle age, okay? So you start to see the world somewhat differently. So between the fact that politically it's sensible for them to crumble to the elites. And probably in their life cycles, they now don't feel like they're disruptors. They're now established. Anyway, ideologically, they have moved to where the elites want them to be. Um, I don't think that that can happen uh, 100% in, in the internet. I think the, 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 inter the digital world is too vast and, and uh, um, uh, multifarious for control to be established. But there's no question that a lot of the visibility, a lot of the discussion that gets talked about in public, for example, during elections and things like that, these people control. Um, but what you're doing is you're leaving, the public is still there, all right? You still have these people who elected Donald Trump, who erupt in, in, in our cities because they feel like Black Lives Matter. And you have, uh, you have all these, uh, um, angry and, and uh, invisible uh, human beings who are still taking advantage of the internet. And the more they are squeezed out by these oligarchical presences, the angrier they get. So you're just creating pressure that's gonna blow at some point. And you, you of course push them to weird platforms like, like 4chan or whatever. And, and, and the second you, you, you take Donald Trump out from the spotlight of social media and, and cast them away, um, you are you're basically giving an advantage to some crazy prophet like QAnon, right? Uh, who can work in 4chan in the darkness, you know, the, the invisibility of, of 4chan, and he, nobody's going to silence him. So you are creating a situation that I think is pretty explosive. And I think, and honestly, it's, it's exploding even as we talk. I was curious to get your thoughts on how the reception of your book has really emphasized the kind of sense of your vision as almost prophetic in thinking about these conflicts that are, of course, diverse and complicated between the elite and the public. Um, because you wrote the book in 2014, uh, which was, of course, preceding the uh, election of former President Trump, which you've highlighted in your comments, too, as being kind of crucial to this story. So what do you make of the kind of characterization of your work as prophetic and, and why do you think it's able to received in that way? How were you able to write something that could be received in that way? That's a really good question. I wish I had an answer. Okay, look at page one of the book. It says, I do not do predictions and I do not do prophecies, all right? And I have spent the last three years since uh uh, the second edition was published, uh, saying that, and it seems to make absolutely no difference. I mean, I th the word that gets attached to me is prescient, because I, I think it's going to keep yelling about 
being being right about predicting anything because I never do predictions. I worked at CIA for many years. <clears throat> the um, business model of CIA is predicting the future for the president. Um, I always say, when the when tomorrow looked exactly like yesterday, which by the way is most of the time, right? Um, CIA was 100% on, right? However, what the president wants is not that. He can figure out things when tomorrow looks like yesterday. He wants discontinuities. He wants 9-11s, Pearl Harbors. He wants the Pakis have the bomb. You know, the Pakistanis have the bomb. The Indians have the bomb. The Soviets have the bomb. Every last time that that happened, it, the prediction was wrong. And I think it's, it was not any st structural flaw. These are brilliant people at CIA. It was not uh, that they were misled. It's just that the, the future is unpredictable in, in principle, in principle. And I think it's intellectually dishonest to pretend that you can predict it. I mean, obviously there are trends and you can say if a trend is, conti is continuing into the future, then this is probably, and you can make some speculation that way. And that's legitimate, I think. But to pretend that you actually can predict the future, the human future, we are complex animals, any one of us. I can't even predict what I'm gonna be doing. I think I'm going to be doing one thing and I end up doing another. All right. Nobody knows me better than me. And I can't predict. Now imagine, you know, 6 billion me's out there all interacting with each other in very unpredictable ways and random ways. It cannot be done. I think I laid out a, a framework that I had seen because I was in that, in that um, corner of CIA that dealt with global media. So I was kind of like at a high ground when it came to uh, the digital. I, I, I was standing up on, on top of the mountain. I could see that disruption coming. You know, and it wasn't just me. All of us who were standing there, several of us who were standing there could see, wow, what is that about? You know, um, So it wasn't like I predicted anything. I just happened to be very lucky in where I was situated. And I could tell that most people were not getting. People were still dealing and talking in terms that were uh, you know, we inherited from the 20th century. And I could tell that when this disruption was hitting, those terms made no sense whatsoever, applied to nothing. So I guess in that sense, it made it uh, the, the, the book and the framework of the, of the book, which I, I still continue to use, made it easier for people to interpret changes as they were happening. But I did not predict a thing. No, I, I have no idea why they keep asking, they're telling me that. <laughs> I think that um, there is a lot of ways in which people who are thinking comparatively um, and not limiting themselves to domestic politics, as well as people who are thinking historically. So comparing across place and time helps uh, provide insights that might be overlooked and illuminate patterns that can be seen. And so I think that is that is a part of it. Um, and so I think that's a virtue of your work in that way. I was interested in what this brings to mind for me, particularly our earlier conversations about the structural affordances of technology, is that now we have gone through the uh, I think what you call cyber optimism uh, and then cyber skepticism or so we had this kind of earlier time of optimism around the democrat democratic power of digital media and internet. And then we had the tech lash, particularly coinciding with um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, for example, uh, as well as other aspects of the 2016 election. But now I think we have this new rising optimism, optimism, excuse me, about Web 3.0 
And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, even though you, you don't like to predict, but uh, how you think of the speculation around Web 3.0 and how it's going to affect these dynamics. I mean, I, I think the, our, our current digital oligarchs are setting themselves up for the public just migrating in mass, or at least large portions of the public migrating in mass somewhere else. This is a moment of, of uh, um, dissatisfaction because if you are on Facebook, if you are on Google, if you are on uh, uh, Twitter and you have certain opinions, um, you don't know that you're going to be able to get them out there, right? So you need a place that's freer. You need a frontier. It's a very American thing, right? The whole digital world is based on the concept of the frontier. And, and the frontier has now, the cattle barons have come, you know, and they basically hired their thugs. And if you step out of line, the thugs come and burn your little, you know, log house, log cabin down and, and, and run you out. The, 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 us sodbusters are, are, are not allowed in, in that empire. So, um, so Web3 is, is potentially, I mean, we're talking potentially the next phase. Some people call it the, the metaverse. And of course, um, uh, Zuckerberg is looking at, at that as maybe expanding his oligarchy into that realm. It won't happen. It won't happen. I think Facebook will be lucky to keep the people it has, uh, much less expand into some kind of metaverse in which we all live in, in Facebook 365 days a year. So I, I think the important thing about, about Web3 uh, and, and, and metaverse is that it has to be a pluriverse, right? Not a monoverse. It has to be something that has many, um, many nodes of authority and many nodes of community in it. Sort of like the internet used to be, I think, but, it, but this is going to be baked in. The people who are into it, and I don't pretend to have the technical know-how to understand, but when you talk to them, they all say, we're going to bake into that system so that you can't happen what happened with Web 2.0, that it ended up with all the cattle barons, three, four cattle barons owning all the real estate and the rest of us just kind of you know, begging permission to, to say what we want to say. So, so if this happens, if Web 3 happens, it will be a far more dispersed, a far more decentralized, a far freer how that might look, I have no idea. I really don't know. Whether it works, I have no idea. But I, I think there's, there is a lot of hunger for a frontier again in the digital. Uh, we can, we, you can all escape the cattle barons by going even further west. Great. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is certainly an open question as to what Web 3.0 will look like. And certainly it seems to me the extent to which current companies like Google and uh, Meta do attempt to kind of build a lot of that infrastructure it does seem to affect the extent to which it really will be a decentralized and radically uh, different system without the same kind of problems, or at least I guess there is always the possibility of new kinds of problems arising. I also in thinking about these questions with Web 3.0 and technology, I was very struck with the emphasis in your work, both in your book and your other work, on visual imagery. 
And as somebody who studied film and uh, I'm a photographer, I'm interested in visual imagery as well. It is always kind of striking to me how we don't really teach a form of literacy that is helps people uh, interpret what they see. Um, is that something that you think about at all and, and the dominance of visual imagery in the way that we experience our lives and politics? Deeply, deeply. And I have asked exactly the question that you just posed, which is why don't we teach ourselves um, uh, how to how to decode the, the rhetoric of images? This is something actually, you know, as opposed to most other things that, I, that I'm asked to talk about where basically, you know, I, I tell you what I think. This is actually uh, one of the few things that I know something about <laughs> because I, I, um, I led a, a process at CIA to come up with a, a, um, a, a way to, to analyze the rhetoric of visual persuasion. And, I mean, that was a fascinating process. Number one, the reason we did it was because many of us felt the digital world is is the triumph of the image over the printed word. So all of us spent all this time fighting over those words that we're talking about, you know, but you know what's having an impact? It's not that. It's some silly meme or some some picture from Ukraine, you know, or, you know, Zelensky in Ukraine in a t-shirt and dark, dark of night, you know, in Kiev. And, and you suddenly, you have a different feeling about what's going on in this very complicated conflict because you have you have digested that image and i can tell you you and i and anybody in this country with any kind of an education have been trained to protect ourselves against the rhetoric of of the 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 word that does not happen with the image the image comes in through your reptile brain and you believe that you're looking at a window to the world and it's instantly instantly persuadable even if you later on kind of step back from it we had a, um, a moment where we were trying to figure out how, how this worked. We had this young woman with all kinds of electrodes in her head. She's got to paste it on. And she was watching this, this visual set of imagery that was meant to be very emotive. And she's going, I don't know what you guys are talking about. This thing means nothing to me. And we're watching her electrodes going crazy, just crazy. I mean, her, her brain waves, your brain patterns going crazy. And so not only do they get at you, but you're not even aware of it. Now that can be taught and you can realize it the same way you were taught with text, right? Um, there are patterns of persuasion. There are patterns of, of manipulation. Um, and, most, and it's not necessarily long lasting. I mean, I, I'm not persuaded that it's long lasting, but that they have far more power imagery than, than the written word and that they have a, a rhetoric that you can use. And of course, great um, cinematic directors, that's what they do. And then, mm -hmm. by the way, that was another weird thing about that, that whole process. We had people from Hollywood there, right? <laughs> and they were like the most brilliant. They would look at an image and say, oh yeah, look at that. Oh yeah, look. None of us could see it until mm -hmm. they pointed it out to us. Mm -hmm. So then we would say to them, I would say, okay, how do you how do you see that? You know, how, but by what process do you get there? You know we're analysts at CAA, everything is a process. They, they couldn't articulate it. It was totally intuitive. <laughs> you know, they couldn't say how they got to see it. They were completely inarticulate. So, but they were by far, you know, you could tell that these were people who had different eyes that, that, that I do for sure. Um, 
and and saw things that when they pointed it out to us, we went, oh yeah, but we were not aware. So Hollywood, that's what they do. They they manipulate these images to make a lot of money. So it, it I, I I think honestly, our education system fails us. I think we ought to be taught about, for example, how to deal with news and information, whatever. And uh, and I think in particular, we have to be taught about how to deal with imagery. Um, do you think that in order to grapple with the current dynamics of the internet uh, and kind of disinformation and persuasion uh, through digital interactions, we have to be grappling more with our kind of history of mass media and film in, in, in these ways? Well, I mean... Um... First of all, I think sublimation, you know, where they, where they, where they show you the, the, the effects of that have been shown to be very short. Yes, yes, of you, course. You kind of walk away from it and suddenly, you know, you snap out of it. And I think that can be extended. And I am, I will freely admit in, in a lonely minority, in, in my opinion in this, but I believe persuasion is very difficult. I mm. think it can be. It can happen. Obviously, it can happen. And and there there have been great persuaders in history who have turned uh, historical processes around uh, in, in directions that wouldn't have happened if, if that persuasion had not taken place. But it's difficult. It's very difficult. The the default is a, a book by um, an author called Hugo Mercier. It's called Not Born Yesterday. What I recommend. Uh, essentially. Our default, our psychological default is not, um, oh, look, I just learned a new thing and I believe in it. Um, our psychological default is the exact opposite of that. We hunker down. When uncertain, when we don't know the, the, the source or we, I'm not sure we trust the source, we hunker down and we say, well, you know, I don't believe that until somebody else tells me. Um, many of the examples that are given of people who have been driven to do bizarre and even violent things by, by what is called disinformation, um, uh, for example, uh, being told that uh, the pogroms in, in France, it's one that's been studied that Mercier talks about, uh, that, um, of course, the, the, the blood libel that the Jews were, were killing infants. And so they went out there and they when when you analyze what actually happened, these were people who hated and envied the Jews and they looted, looted Jewish stores and homes and sometimes killed Jews. And then when they were asked about it, they said, well, I was told somewhere that, that they were killed. So it was a complete after the fact justification for something they wanted to do in the first place. There was no persuasion involved. All right. Um, and when you look at a lot of what seems to be persuasion, for example, uh, the fake news, who reads fake news? Oh my God, lots of people are reading <laughs> fake news. And my, my question is, is there a single mind that has changed? Is there a single mind that has changed? And the answer is there's almost no evidence uh, that a single mind has ever been changed and that any of our elections have had any, you know, the fake news have had any impact here or anywhere. Um, people who... Uh, accept what you and I might consider to be a lie, but empirically would be a lie. Uh, they do so because they were predisposed to do that in the first place and would have um, basically, it, it confirms in this crazy world we live in, you need confirmation for your worldview. And if it's a lie, it's a lie. If it's a truth, it's a truth. I don't think there was a single Catholic voter that read uh, a story about 
uh, the Pope endorsing Trump uh, and then said, oh, I was going to vote for Hillary, but now I'm going to vote for Trump. That just never happens. All right. And, and like I said before, to believe that people are that, that um, flighty and, and that uh, they lack that much heft in, in, their, in their opinions, it puts the, the people who say that in an uncomfortable place of saying, well, why am I not like that too? Because I'm a superior mind, a superior character. And that's, that's not a place I want to be at as an analyst, honestly. Yes. And I, I think that one can also draw a comparison between the sort of earlier attempts to try to show the power of, of being able to use visual imagery to, to brainwash, to influence, to persuade. Um, and also the, the fact that it is in the company's business interests, those Google and Facebook, um, other social media companies to suggest that the way they're targeting of digital advertising works is that it has some technological superiority in breaking down uh, and that possibility of persuasion in that way. And so I think your, your insights to this, the skepticism is actually an, an important corrective, um, but, not uh, just for, for, the, for, for these discussions. But I think actually, uh, as I understand it, when I talk to the people who've been involved with that, and again, the Antonio Garcia Martinez, if you read his book, Chaos Monkeys, uh, it's a great book. It's about essentially that, about marketing, marketing in the mm. digital world. Um, it, what you're doing is what I just said, right? I mean, you, you're putting in front of people who are already predisposed to want something that you have the data to be able to do that. You're not saying, oh, Martin Gurry, you never have thought about this product, but now I'm going to persuade you that you want it. No. Uh, and I, this happens to me with Amazon and books all the time, for example. I mean, I, I'm interested in a certain subject and I say, oh, you might be interested in, or people who bought your book, also bought and you go, oh, I never even knew that book existed, but that's exactly what my research is about. So they're actually doing me a favor. They're not changing my mind. Yeah. It's not, it's not precisely persuasion, right. even while it might have some effect. Uh, but it, 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 is, it is very successful, actually. That does yes. work. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. That's such a, a nuanced and important insight to, to, I think, conclude with. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about all these topics with us. There's a few different important points from the episode that I wanted to review. Martin talks about these five waves of major changes in information and communications technology. So the first two are related to writing, and then the third is the printing press, and the fourth is 20th century mass media and the more recent rise of digital media. And looking back on the 16th century religious wars in Europe that followed the invention of the printing press... One of Martin's main points was that the kind of political practices and ideas that ultimately won out and defined our world today seems to be something else entirely different from the specific doctrines espoused by the major combatants, Catholics and Protestants. And I really appreciated that Martin's point was to suggest that we fundamentally can't predict the future. I really appreciated this because, as I said in the episode, thinking comparatively appreciates the politics of different countries as well as the politics that of of changes across time throughout history and in doing that we might be able to come up with very interesting kinds of patterns and problems that we might notice through to today but that doesn't mean that we think we could mine the past for answers or that we can use it to predict the future 
Rather, the historical perspective should help us notice things we might otherwise take for granted about our own lives, while giving us a sense of humility and appreciation for contingency and the unpredictability of society. In the episode, I use the term affordances, and that's a concept that I got from sociologist Zenep Tefekci's book, Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest. Technological affordances are, in her words, the actions a given technology facilitates or makes possible. And as we talk about in the podcast, this relates to various design features of social media platforms and the ways in which they might be structured to incentivize and discourage certain kinds of speech or actions. And this makes them very different from the kind of structures of the traditional mass media environment, like the uh, network news and, and television companies of the past. So these decisions are shaped not only by individuals working at these companies, but that these individuals themselves are influenced by broader political economic incentives to which they're responding. Martin also mentioned Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Section 230 was a response to a couple different court cases, and in short, these court cases were attempting to figure out whether online service providers should be held liable for content users or other third parties shared. Jeff Kosef gives a great history of this in a law review article and in a book and, and some interviews as well. But in short, these different court decisions ended up setting a precedent that created perverse incentives when it came to how companies moderated the content on their platforms. The more that a company moderated content, so the more a company might have taken down any kind of harassment or defamatory claims, the more likely they were to be found liable for things their users posted. And so rather than attempt to regulate this speech, uh, they would actually be incentivized not to do anything at all. I think there's much more that could be said about all this, and hopefully we'll get into it more throughout the podcast But just in short now, I want to draw a comparison here between the law and to these design design decisions of digital platforms and how those affordances shape behavior is kind of similar to the way that the regulatory landscape and law shapes behavior as well. We also talked about the rise of visual media, videos, and images, and how while education today often includes literacy and training students in being able to recognize the rhetorical methods used to persuade readers or listeners, there's also a kind of language that is articulated in photography and video, or as Martin put it, a rhetoric of visual persuasion. And so we concluded the episode with more of a discussion on a very popular topic today, which is the question of digital media literacy, as well as visual media literacy, and these ideas that we need to be more aware of how to analyze and evaluate the kind of media that we consume, both the quality of news shared online, let's say, as well as being able to think critically about the emotional power of images as well. Thanks for listening. Till next time.